is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The Cremation of Sam McGee is one of the most famous poems by Robert W. Service. It was published in 1907 in Songs of a Sourdough. A sourdough, in this sense, is a resident of the Yukon. It's about the cremation of a prospector who freezes to death, told by the man who cremates him. Here now is the cremation of Sam McGee, told by the great Johnny Cash. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men that toil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lakely Barge that I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell. Though he'd often say in his homely way, I'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail, and you talk of your cold well, through the parka's fold it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd close and the lashes froze till sometimes we couldn't see, it wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow and the dogs were fed and the stars overhead were dancing heel and toe, he turned to me and Cap says he, I'll cash in this trip, I guess. And if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of a moan, It's the cursed cold, and it's got right hold till I'm chill clean through to the bone. Yet it ain't being dead, it's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. So I want you to swear that foul or fair, You'll cremate my last remains. Well, a pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the break of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. And he crouched on the sleigh, and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee. And before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. With a corpse half hid that I couldn't get rid, I hurried horror-driven. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and because of a promise given, it was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, You may tax your brawn and brains, but you promise true, and it's up to you to cremate my last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were numb, in my heart how I cursed that load. In the long, long night by the lone firelight, while the huskies round in a ring, howled out their woes to the homeless snows. Oh, God, how I loathed that thing. And every day that quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow, and on I went though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low, and the trail was bad. And I felt half mad, but I swore I'd not give in. And I'd often sing to that hateful thing. 
and it hearkened with a grin. Till I came to the marge of Lake LeBarge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, but I saw in a thrice it was called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen chum. Then here, said I with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor, and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found that was lying round, and I heaped the fuel higher. Well, the flames just soared, and the furnace roared, such a blaze you never did see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal, and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled, and the huskies howled, and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear, but the stars came out and they danced about before I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peek inside. I guess he's cooked and it's time I looked. Then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm in the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile, and he said, please close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. And since I left Plum Tree down in Tennessee, this is the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men that toil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lakely Barge that I cremated Sam McGee. And what a piece of storytelling, and that's what we do here on Our American Stories. We get out of the way, we find some really great material, and we share it with you. And by the way, as Johnny Cash was telling that story, I couldn't get the thought of the Lonesome Dove out of my head and that great burial scene where, of course, Woodrow has to bury Gus. He has to take him all the way back all the way back across the country by wagon because he made a promise to his buddy. By the way, if you remember the line, he says, I'll, I guess this will teach me to be more careful about what I promise in the future. But a promise then was a promise, and hopefully you know people in your life now today where a promise is a promise. The cremation of Sam McGee, what storytelling, and that's the great Johnny Cash. If you've got an old story like this from American literature, from the American canon, Send us your suggestions. We'll put them up on the air and send them right back at you. American literature at its finest. American performance art at its finest. And American storytelling at its finest here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We're about to tell the story about the film It's a Wonderful Life. What is it about that movie that makes it so alluring? On the most basic level, it reminds us all that every person matters, that we can depend on the strength of family and friends, and that God hears our desperate cries. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of this Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. In the closing scene of It's a Wonderful Life, newly commissioned first-class guardian angel Clarence Oddbody reminds George Bailey, no man is a failure who has friends. For countless families, including my own, George Bailey and the cast of It's a Wonderful Life have long been treasured holiday friends, reminding us of the power of friendship and the potential impact and worth of a single human life. It's a Wonderful Life is an illustration of the values and virtues we see illustrated in the Christmas story. Self-sacrifice, provision, faith, generosity, mercy, grace, joy, divine intervention, the meaning of life, and forgiveness. Like the joy of carefully opening a skillfully wrapped Christmas present, we are about to remove the wrapper from this film, discovering some of the precious anecdotes in virtually every scene. It's Christmas Eve. A desperate man certain that his entire life has been worth nothing stands on the brink of suicide. But God has better things in store for George Bailey. Dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope, right? Surprisingly, It's a Wonderful Life began as a Christmas card. In 1943, writer Philip Van Doren Stern wrote a short story he called The Greatest Gift. When Stern couldn't sell his story, he had 200 copies printed and enclosed them in his Christmas cards. Three months later, RKO Radio Studios bought The Greatest Gift for $10,000 intending to make a Christmas movie with Cary Grant. Three different scripts were commissioned for The Greatest Gift by noted writers Mark Connolly, Dalton Trumbo, and Clifford Odets. But none of them made the grade. So The Greatest Gift gathered dust on the shelf at RKO. That is until director Frank Capra discovered it. Capra read The Greatest Gift and saw its potential immediately. RKO, anxious to unload the troublesome project, sold The Greatest Gift to Capra for the same $10,000 they'd paid for it and threw in all three scripts for free. Frank Russell Capra was one of the most successful directors of the 1930s with classics, such as It Happened One Night, You Can't Take It With You, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. During World War II, Capra served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps and produced propaganda films such as the Why We Fight series. Born in Italy and raised in Los Angeles from the age of five, his rags to riches story has led film historians such as Ian Freer to consider him the American dream personified. Capra was very popular with audiences, but critics often mocked his optimistic, wholesome, sentimental, and uplifting films, calling them Capricorn, qualities that were rare even in the heydays of the 1930s and 40s. 
Capper didn't mind, though. He thought that making positive statements through his movies was very important. It's a Wonderful Life is a sentimental film, but it's also an honest one. It explores the pain of normal life as well as the joy. Here's Frank Capra. That's a great film. I love that film. It's my favorite film. And in a sense, it epitomizes everything I've been trying to do and trying to say in the other films, only does it very dramatically with a, with a very unique story. The importance of the individual is the theme that, I'm, that it, it, it tells, and uh, that no man is a failure, and every man has a, something to do with his life. If he's born, he's born to do something. I suppose it would been better if I'd never been born at all. What did you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. Wait a minute, that's an idea. What do you think? And this idea is carried out in this unique plot, because a man who thought he was a failure and thought he'd be, everybody around him would have been better off had he not been born, was given the chance to see how the world around him would have been, his own small little world would have been, had he not been born. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? Although many of the film's roles would prove difficult to cast, Capra had only one George Bailey in mind, Jimmy Stewart, who had already starred in Capra's You Can't Take It With You in 1938 and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939. Stewart, who became the first movie star to wear a military uniform, had just returned from the Second World War as a combat bomber pilot and was one of the few Americans to ever rise from private to colonel in only four years. Like most returning GIs, Stewart wondered what would happen next. My contract with MGM ran out during the war, and I just got a phone call one day. It was Frank Capra, and he said, I have an idea for a story. Why don't you come down, and, and I'll, uh, I'll tell, tell it to you. Well, I couldn't get down there quick enough, and I sat down, and he said, you're a uh, fellow in a small town. Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and next year and the year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. Yeah, then you get married, you have all these kids. Hello, Daddy. Hello, Daddy. And your father dies and you have to take over the building Four, alone. Three, two, one, bingo! <laughs> We're still in business. We've still got two bucks left. And uh, finally, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to jump off a bridge. And an angel by the name of Clarence, he comes down to help you, but uh, he can't swim. Help! Well, you go down and uh, save the... He said, this, this really doesn't sound very good, does it? I said, Frank, if you, want, if you want me to be in a picture about a guy that wants to kill himself and an angel comes down and Clarence, and he can't swim, and I saved. I, I, when do we start? As a screen actor, they don't come much more likable than Jimmy Stewart. His characters on screen are honest, direct, and friendly. But Frank Capra saw a darker personality beneath Stewart's all-American charm. He knew that Stewart 
could not only own the lighter moments in the film, but that he could also be convincing as a man sinking into bitterness and despair. Here's Hollywood legend Carol Burnett. I think it's uh, one of the finest pieces of work of acting anyone has ever done on the screen. That moment at that bar, uh, it's indelible in my mind. He realizes that he has lost everything. The money is missing. It's Christmas Eve, and he sits there and starts to cry. He is so in tune with that character and with that writing that uh, he and George Bailey are one. Capra's genius in casting can be seen in how he populated Bedford Falls with the finest bunch of character actors in Hollywood. The role of George's Uncle Billy was considered for W.C. Fields, but was given to the first man to win an Oscar, an Emmy, and a Tony Award, Thomas Mitchell. Oh, maybe I better go home. Where's my hat? Where's my hat? Oh, oh thank you, George. This is mine, the metal one. Oh. For the evil Mr. Potter, Capra considered the master of chills, Vincent Price, but was inevitably played to nasty perfection by Lionel Barrymore, Drew Barrymore's great uncle. George, I am an old man. Most people hate me, but I don't like them either, so that makes it all even. For George Bailey's wife, Mary, Capra's instincts were accurate once again when he cast the relatively unknown MGM contract player, Donna Reed, the perfect mixture of wholesome sex appeal and homegrown American strength and virtue. What'd you wish, George? And what storytelling this is. When we come back, I know you're going to want to hear the rest of this story of the making of It's a Wonderful Life from some of the original people on the scene when it was made here on Our American Story. Turn to the story of the making of It's a Wonderful Life. And when we last left off, director Frank Capra was casting a young farm girl from Iowa named Donna Reed. What'd you wish, George? Well, not just one wish, a whole hat full. Here's an interesting bit of trivia. Frank Capra had hired someone to toss a rock at the window for Donna Reed in the old house scene. But as it turned out, she was a terrific baseball pitcher. Reed surprised Capra and the production crew with the power and accuracy of her toss, throwing the rock better than anyone else on the set. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. Were oh, you going to throw a rock? Hey, that's pretty good. What'd you wish, Mary? Donna Reed's sweetness and beauty make it obvious to us, if not to George, that staying in Bedford Falls is not a punishment 
but a pleasure. Welcome home, Mr. Bailey. If George was to have a wonderful life, to a great extent, it was his wife who made it so. Remember the night we broke the windows in this old house? This is what I wished for. These days, movies can say and show almost anything imaginable. But in 1946, the Motion Picture Association of America's production code eliminated the words impotent, dang, lousy, and jerk from Capra's script. In one case, Capra managed to sidestep the production code that stipulated that criminals had to be punished for their crimes. But when Mr. Potter steals Uncle Billy's misplaced building and loan $8,000 deposit, he never receives his penalty. Capra said that he received more mail about this point over the years than about anything else in the film. All right, George, go ahead. Go ahead. You can't hide in a little town like this. <laughs> the little town of Bedford Falls was in fact a set built on the RKO Ranch in Encino, California a city that never sees snow, not even in the coldest days of winter, let alone during the record-breaking heatwave summer of filming in 1946. At the time, movie snow was usually made of cornflakes painted white, but the large crunch made it impossible to record dialogue. The special effects crew invented a new type of artificial snow using a wind machine and a special mixture of 6,000 gallons of fomite, sugar, soap, and water. One of the funniest scenes in the movie takes place at a high school gymnasium when a Charleston contest is suddenly interrupted when the floor of the gym slides open, revealing a swimming pool beneath it. I've got the key. Many critics jeered at this scene, calling it movie fakery at its worst. But it's real, and what is called the swim gym is in daily use to this very day at Beverly Hills High School. And if the jealous prankster who opens the gym floor over George Bailey looks familiar, it's because it's none other than Carl Schweitzer, otherwise known as Alfalfa from Our Gang or The Little Rascals. Frank Capra loved to take advantage of surprises on the set, During the scene where Uncle Billy has too much to drink and says goodbye to George, a technician off-screen accidentally knocked over a stack of props. It sounded like Uncle Billy had fallen into a whole stack of garbage cans. The production guy expected to be fired, but Capra gave him a $10 bonus for improving sound and characterization. Thank you, George. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Now, look. If you point me in the right direction, would you do that, George? Right down. Old, old building and lone pal. Huh? Now you're just turn this way. I'm not right straight down there. Oh, well, that way. Huh? My wife. I'm all right. I'm all right. Oh, sweetest flower. In another sequence. Capra faced an unexpected snag when Jimmy Stewart became extremely reluctant to kiss Donna Reed in the now-famous telephone scene. He kept asking Capra to delay the scene, arguing that he had been away from the cameras too long for such a hot and heavy scene. 
A fella gets rusty, he said. Capper insisted they shoot the scene. And just to make sure Stewart didn't back out, he restaged it so that Jimmy Stewart and Reed had to share the phone. The scene was shot in one take and is arguably the greatest kiss in movie-making history. George, George, George. Everyone has a favorite part in It's a Wonderful Life, including Jimmy Stewart himself. Here he is on a walk and talk with Johnny Carson. Of all the great scenes in that picture, what was your favorite? Well, I think it was the scene with the angel Clarence. Yeah. When we were in that uh, little house, but when we'd just been in the water. The bridge tender. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, Clarence told me that he was an angel that uh, hadn't won his wings yet. I, I love that. Hey, what's, what's with you? What did what, what, you say just a minute ago? Why'd you want to save me? That's what I was sent down for. I'm your guardian angel. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Ridiculous of you to think of killing yourself for money. Eight thousand dollars. Yeah, now, think, just things like that. How do you know that? I told you I'm your guardian angel. I know everything about you. Well, you look about like the kind of an angel I'd get. Sort of a fallen angel, aren't you? What happened to your wings? I haven't worn my wings yet. That's why I'm an angel second class. Uh, I don't know whether I like it very much being seen around an angel without any wing. This is one of the wonderful things about the picture, I think. The scene at the end of the picture, uh, this is after that's... It's a different place. Nobody knows me and everything. But I just, uh, I stop for a minute and I say, God, I'm not a praying man, but please bring me back. Please bring me back. I want to live again. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. The film premiered in New York's Globe Theater on West 46th Street on December 20th, 1946 and failed to crack the top 25 grossing films for 1947. It was nominated for five Academy Awards, but didn't win a single gold statue. Within a few months, It's a Wonderful Life was out of sight and out of mind, where it would inevitably retire into obscurity. But future audiences would rediscover the film thanks to a legal loophole. In the early 1970s, copyright on the film expired and the movie company failed to renew it. Therefore, the film entered into the public domain. Television networks could play It's a Wonderful Life as often as they wanted without paying any royalties. Word of mouth began to spread, and more and more people began to fall in love with the picture. Bert, do you know me? It came from just little bits of thinking just just remember no man is born to be a failure just remember no man is poor who has friends it shows values that are really very close to an awful lot of us and are really very basic american values like george bailey we might wonder what the world might have been like without it's a wonderful life But like George Bailey, the film was rescued from oblivion by its friends, making It's a Wonderful Life one of the greatest films of all time. Fellow Americans who love 
all the optimistic, wholesome, sentimental, and uplifting ingredients in Capricorn. It is a wonderful life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always. And go to Our American Network to hear all of our art stories and all of our movie stories. Frank Capra's story, It's a Wonderful Life story, here on Our American Stories. This is our American stories, and it's Christmas time, and so we're gonna playing. We're gonna be playing a lot of Christmas music. And by the way, the guitar playing you hear on a lot of our ins and outs is by a guy named Tommy Emmanuel, and Jesse loves him, and we've come to love him. And there's nothing he can't play, no kind of music he can't play. And from what I understand, seeing him play live is something, and he sells out everywhere he goes. Tommy Emanuel, just a great musician. And no words, no singing, just one guy and one guitar. Old school. And you're listening to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and we love telling you the stories of songs, and this is quite a story. And by the way, for a really great story, go to our Bing and Bowie story on how the little drummer boy got made. Oh my goodness. It's just terrific. Well... Nearly all of us have heard the song, but where did it come from? The song did not start out as a song at all. It was a children's book written by a Jewish man named Robert L. May. He was an ad man for the Montgomery Ward department store in Chicago. In 1939, the May family was in a rough spot. They were hit hard by the Great Depression, and Bob's wife Evelyn was diagnosed with breast cancer two years earlier. Though luck had not been kind, Bob did not lose heart and channeled his hope into a special project, a story about an outcast reindeer. When Bob was done, he showed it to his boss. And, of course, his boss hated it. By the way, we learned that about Charlie Brown's Christmas. Nobody at CBS liked the thing. That's actually proof that it's probably going to be a hit, by the way. When the suits don't like it and the executives don't like it, that means the American public probably will. At the time, a red nose was associated with... Lots of drinking, not exactly the kind of image Ward was looking to project. But Bob wouldn't take no for an answer. He persuaded a company artist to go with him to the zoo to sketch reindeer, cute little reindeer that weren't at all suggestive of a long week at a bar. Those sketches made all the difference. The project moved forward. In July of 1939, Bob's wife, Evelyn, died. Bob's boss suggested that he take time off and give the book responsibility to someone else. Bob refused. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was his story. Bob said, quote, I needed Rudolph now more than ever. Gratefully, I buried myself in the work. Finally, 
In late August, it was done. Why a reindeer? It was his four-year-old Barbara's favorite animal. He always made sure to read to his daughter Barbara developing parts of the story in order to get her input. Smart man. Barbara loved the story and so did everyone else. Montgomery Ward gave away 2.4 million copies that Christmas. And their next reprint was for 3.6 million. It was a huge hit and really could have brought in the big bucks for Montgomery Ward. But in 1946, they signed off all rights to Bob and his family. As we'll hear later, this made all the difference. Ten years after the book, Bob's brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, turned the Rudolph story into a song. A song that nobody wanted to record. Fortunately, Gene Autry's wife loved the song. So Gene, knowing what was good for him, agreed to record it. He tucked it away on the B-side of a record and didn't think much else of it. Until, of course, it became a number one hit. In fact, it became Autry's biggest-selling record ever. The song eventually sold 12.5 million copies, bested only by White Christmas. So, fellas, when your wife tells you to do something, just do it. So let's hear a little bit of Gene Autry's version now. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen. But do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer had a very shiny nose. And if you ever saw it, you would even say it glows. And we're going to come back to more of that Autry recording, but we wanted to move forward with the story. Now, for some of us, our most familiar memories of Rudolph are from the 1964 Christmas special, which was made 25 years after the original poem. Here's the scene where Rudolph is born. We can even hear the sound his red nose makes. Well, now, let me tell you about Rudolph. It all started a couple of years before the big snow. It was springtime, and Santa's lead reindeer, Donner, had just become a proud papa. Nah, we'll, we'll call him Rudolph. Rudolph is a lovely name. Rudolph. Hey, he knows his name already. got a shiny nose. Sh sh shiny? I'd even say it glow. Well, we'll simply have to overlook it. Now how can you overlook that? His beak blinks like a blinking beacon. <laughs> well, Donner, where's the new member of the family? After all, if he's going to be on my team someday, he'd better get to know me. <laughs> Well, hi there. Aren't you the sturdy little fellow? Ho, 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 ho. Santa. <laughs> and smart, too. Great bouncing iceberg. Now, I'm sure it'll stop as soon as he grows up, Santa. Well, let's hope so if he wants to make the sleigh team someday. 
And by the way, an excerpt from the original poem reads thus. "'Twas the day before Christmas and all through the hills, the reindeer were playing, enjoying the spills of skating and coasting and climbing the willows and hopscotch and leapfrog protected by pillows. While every so often they'd stop to call names at one little deer not allowed in their games. Aha! Look at Rudolph. His nose is a sight. It's red as a beet, twice as big, twice as bright. While Rudolph just wept, what else could he do? He knew that the things they were saying were true. It's really just spectacular, and I'm, I'm not Burl Ives. And Burl Ives, my goodness, what a, what a voice, what an actor, what a part. But back to the, the great and epic show. So poor Rudolph ran away, and his mom and dad went out to find him. So they make it back, and when everybody hears their story, they start to realize maybe... They were a little hard on the misfits. Maybe misfits have a place, too. Even Santa realizes that maybe he was wrong. Rudolph, I promise, as soon as this storm lets up, I'll find homes for all those misfit toys. Latest weather report, sir. Well, this is it. The storm won't subside by tonight. We... We'll have to cancel Christmas. Papa, are you sure? Everything's grounded. Oh, Oh, the poor kids. They've been so good this year, too. But I couldn't chance it. I'll have to tell everybody that it's all off this year. I've got some bad news, folks. Christmas is going to be canceled. There's nothing I can do. This weather. Yeah. Rudolph, Rudolph, please. Could you tone it down a bit? I mean, that nose of yours. I, that nose. That beautiful, wonderful nose. Huh? Rudolph, Christmas is not off, and you're going to lead my team. From what I see now, that'll cut through the murkiest storm they can dish up. What I'm trying to say is, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? It will be an honor, sir. As we know, Bob May was down on his luck while writing, Rudolph. Many poems and songs born out of tragedy are sullen and weighty, but not this one. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. This children's story turned into a song that was filled with hope. Hope for those who feel downcast. And useless. Now let's listen to Bob May's youngest daughters, Martha May and Betsy Decker, recount the story of Rudolph and what that little reindeer has meant to them. My father was a wonderful, creative, incredible person um, who gave the world something that will never be taken away. All of the other reindeer. He never, ever would have imagined that, that it would be what it is today. My house is full of reindeer. I have every ornament. We feel very fortunate. There are a lot of things we couldn't do, wouldn't have college educations, for one, uh, if it weren't for, for Rudolph. And there you have it. The memory lives on. And that's the thing about art and stories. You can just pass them along. And Gene Autry's a smart man. Again, he listened to his wife, put this on the B-side, and it became his biggest hit. The story of a song, the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, 
Let's leave where we started with Gene Autry's version. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song, a beloved Christmas song. Red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose And if you ever saw it, you would even say it glows All of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names They never let poor Rudolph join in any reindeer games. Then one foggy Christmas Eve, Santa came to say, This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the sports world to the arts world, from business, because my goodness, where will we be without inventors and innovators in American business, and straight down to faith leaders. And this is our very first story about, well, buildings and the spaces we live in and inhabit. And we bring you the story of a man who single-handedly changed the way America and the world looks at architecture. Here's Jesse Edwards with the story. Most Americans are at least somewhat familiar with the architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright. Even if by some chance you don't know his name, you've seen and probably admired his work on a calendar or in a magazine. Born in 1867, he designed over a thousand structures, 532 of which were completed. Wright believed in designing structures that were in harmony with humanity and its environment, a philosophy he called organic architecture. He was recorded in 1956 at the Plaza Hotel in New York City where he talked about his philosophies on architecture, society, culture, education, and music. He was well known for being outspoken, bombastic, a master of publicity, highly opinionated, and ruggedly individualistic a magnificently flawed and complex character. His father was a music teacher and a Baptist minister. My father taught me. He was a preacher, but he was first of all a musician and made his living, or tried to, teaching music later on. He never was able to support us by way of it, and his life was a kind of tragedy. But he taught me that a symphony was an edifice of sound, and that it was built, and I learned pretty soon that it was built by the same kind of mind in much the same way that a building is built. And when that came to me, I used to sit and listen to the only master that was immaculate in my my listening was Beethoven. He was a great architect. And he had a great disciple, and his greatest disciple was Brahms. Brahms was a true disciple, such as any uh, man could be proud to have. If I had in architecture a disciple such as Brahms was, where Beethoven was concerned, I should be extremely happy. Frank Lloyd Wright never took on any disciples, and his father left him when he was 14 years old. He attended high school in Madison, Wisconsin, but there's no evidence of his graduation. He was admitted to the University of Wisconsin-Madison as a special student in 1886, but he left without a degree. In 1887, Wright went to Chicago looking for work after the Great Chicago Fire, 
where he was hired as a draftsman. On June 1st of 1889, Frank Lloyd Wright marries his first wife, Catherine, and by 1893, now in his mid-20s, opens his own practice and begins planning. The thing comes to life in a plan because you can't make a plan without a sense of what the plan is for. And I think a plan is always beautiful, perhaps more beautiful than anything that ever comes afterward. Plan, the idea is the plan. The plan contains the idea. Now, the house is an idea, if it's a good house. And that idea embraces all that composes, or will compose, the uh, usefulness and beauty of that house. It's right there in the plan. By 1901, Wright had completed about 50 projects, including many houses in Oak Park, Illinois. Four of those houses have been identified as the onset of the prairie style of architecture. Horizontal lines, flat roofs with broad overhanging eaves, windows grouped in horizontal bands, integration with the landscape, solid construction, craftsmanship, and a discipline in the use of ornament. Frank Lloyd Wright promoted an idea of organic architecture, the primary tenet of which was that a structure should look as if it naturally grew from the site. It's all a nature study, the building of a house. And when you proceed from generals to particulars, as you do when you are building, that's your natural gut, natural center line of your effort would be the, what is the natural thing? What is the nature of your materials? Even the nature of your client? The nature of the situation on which the house is built? Nature of the climate? And I suppose it would be the same in, in a great composition like Beethoven's Irwaka when he was celebrating the heroism of Napoleon and then toward the end of his effort began to feel that Napoleon, after all, was dead so far as his ideal was concerned, and a great sense of tragedy overcame him, and you feel it in the music. It's a great story, a great revelation of a man's worship and disillusionment. Frank Lloyd Wright's prairie houses also featured open floor plans, a prominent central chimney, built-in stylized cabinetry, and a wide use of natural materials, especially stone and wood. He was meticulous when choosing what materials he would use to build with. Well, those that are native, of course, are best, most appropriate, and the cheapest, most feasible. If there's stone in the neighborhood, we like to use stone. If there are kills and there's brick, and brick is characteristic, well, fire fire-built houses are good. And old wood is always the friend of man. Don't you feel friendly to a tree when you see one? And if you don't see one, you're hungry for association with trees. Trees and human beings belong together. I don't think one could exist without the other, perhaps. If they could, it would be the tree that would survive. <laughs> When we return, the architecture, life, and philosophy of the greatest American architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, in his own words, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of America's greatest architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, and what we try to do on this show, well, you're hearing it, anytime we get a chance, you get to hear from the human being, the person himself, and how lucky we are to hear the voice so beautifully and clearly from Frank Lloyd Wright himself. You see, early in life I had to choose between honest arrogance and uh, hypocritical humility. I chose honest arrogance and have seen no occasion to change. After establishing a solid reputation for building houses around the turn of the century, Frank Lloyd Wright left his wife and ran off with one of his clients' wives, Martha Borthwick. This was such a public spectacle at the time that the press hounded them relentlessly. He lost most of his clients, and banks stopped loaning him money. To avoid scrutiny, Frank and Martha escaped to Europe for two years. Once public outcry had calmed, they returned to the United States and built Taliesin, the 600-acre estate near the village of Spring Green, Wisconsin. On August 15, 1914, while Wright was working in Chicago, a disgruntled servant set fire to the living quarters at Taliesin and murdered seven people with an axe as they fled from the burning structure. The dead included his mistress, Martha, and her two children. This marked the end of Frank Lloyd Wright's career for nearly 20 years. His first wife, Catherine, granted him a divorce in 1922 with the stipulation that Wright could not marry his latest lover, Maud Noel. They were married in 1923, but her addiction to morphine led to the failure of that marriage less than a year later. Wright would marry his third wife, Olga, in 1925. It would be another 10 years before Frank Lloyd Wright would make his triumphant comeback as the public forgot or forgave his transgressions. Falling Water is an extraordinary house designed in 1935 by Frank Lloyd Wright, built on top of a 30-foot waterfall. It is by far his most popular building and best exemplifies his philosophy of organic architecture, the harmonious union of art and nature. Located in the mountains of southwestern Pennsylvania, roughly 70 miles outside of Pittsburgh, it's listed among Smithsonian's life list of 28 places to visit before you die. The house was meant to complement its site while still competing with the drama of the falls and their endless sounds of crashing water. The power of the falls is always felt, not visually, but through sound, as the breaking water is constantly heard throughout the entire house. 30 million people must have seen falling water by now. But it was a very simple expression of uh, a man's love for that particular site, the music of the waterfall. And never before had I been given concrete and steel to build a building with. You see, when steel comes into your hand, you can pull on the building and you have what's called a cantilever. Now, the cantilever is this principle of tension. Your arm reaching out from your body and held by the sinews and muscles above, moving as you wish to move it as a cantilever. The trunk, of course, is a support that's in compression. But you can suspend from the end of the cantilever fabrications of any kind. So the new principle in architecture is this principle of the interior support the extended slab, the arm, and the falling screen hanging to the slab. Now that's the structural synthesis of my own building. 
and it is essentially organic in itself. And that is falling water in principle. And the grammar of falling water, now we call the grammar of the building, the shapely means you use to, to uh, make the building manifest. Falling water is an architectural marvel, but it has a few major flaws. Its skylights leak, the waterfall promotes mold growth, and the builders didn't use enough reinforcing steel to support the first floor's concrete skeleton. Despite its flaws, falling water is a masterful work of art. The considerations that Wright would take into account before crafting such a milestone of architecture went far beyond the basic materials used to build a house. The nature of the site, like falling water, and next, the nature of the materials you have to use and the people you're going to work for, and what it is they want to live in, and you have to have an eye on what they want to live for, too. I can't see any future in anything but an individual type of architecture. If the Declaration of Independence in America means anything, and democratic life means anything, that's practically what it means. You see, I was Italian in my uh, country home, lying on the bench, the Dutch door half closed below. Great curiosity existed. It was during a tragedy at Taliesin, and people came in droves to look around, and two women ranged up on a Sunday morning, looked all around into the living room, and old and odd, and how uh, beautiful this was, and how that was so interesting. Then a pause. Finally, one of them said to the other, well, I wonder if I'd like living in a place like this as much as I'd like living in a regular home. Well, now that's the way it all began. They were, these things were strange. They weren't accustomed. They were accustomed to stuffiness and uh, a messy environment and things never going together, making a kind of commotion. And they didn't understand it and didn't want to understand it. They put it on like some old garment when they built a house without thinking. But now comes the uh, necessity for not just taste, but some knowledge. You have to know now, a little better and a little further along, what constitutes good proportion, harmony in buildings, great and beautiful environment. And it's a culture and a growth in itself of the soul. So the people who live in these advanced houses, I think that's what we can call them, must have a greater feeling for life. They must be more in themselves than the people who haven't arrived at that stage in their development. And once they have arrived there, they are liberated, they feel, and they see so much more than they never saw before. They see the uh, lineaments of nature, and as Blake would put it, uh, the lineaments of gratified desire. The original estimated cost for building falling water was $35,000, but the total was closer to $155,000, approximately $2.7 million adjusted for inflation. The cost of restoring the house in 2001 was $11.5 million. Frank Lloyd Wright believed that his architecture and design had the ability to fundamentally change the lives of the people who lived in his buildings, and eventually would change the way society lived in harmony with nature. 
Good architecture creates good behavior. I believe now people are going to know what constitutes good architecture, good environment, and of course good living has to go with it. Good dressing too, good conduct also. All these good things are dependent more or less one on the other and are assisting one another more or less. Because you wouldn't dress in a loud and vulgar way in a quiet and beautiful room. Nor would you be so satisfied with tawdry jazz, perhaps, in a room that was beautifully conceived and had a lovely atmosphere and belonged where it was. It would seem more than ever discordant. So these things all match up as you go along and add up to something that we call culture. Isn't that it? That's what culture means. Wright believed that good architecture created good behavior, which would inevitably lead to a better culture. But this idea clashed with the status quo of his time, and to this day, that education creates the culture. Book smarts versus street smarts. Now, culture and education are two very different things as we practice them. Culture is the developing of the thing by way of itself. And education is informing, teaching, telling, pushing around the individual. So it's only by a natural growth that you can attain culture. But you can come back from a school all filled with, with stuffed with ideas and what we call conditioned instead of enlightened. Isn't that so? So education today doesn't mean culture. And today I think all these youngsters are educated far beyond their capacity and not cultured at all. So I say that education today is not even on speaking terms of what we should call culture. And we need culture more and education less. When we return, Frank Lloyd Wright, the rugged individualist, digs deeper into the clash between culture and education, quality over quantity, and his contempt of standardization, right here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to the life of Frank Lloyd Wright. And when we left off, Wright was making the distinction between culture and education. And by the way, does this still resonate today, folks? You bet you it does. You're all nodding as you're listening to him talk. Here's Jesse. Wright inspired and continues to inspire generations of young and upcoming architects through not just his works, but his ability to think and design in ways that weren't being taught in institutions of higher learning. How is originality cultivated when everyone is being taught to think the same way? I think all these young people in school now are hungry for something that they don't get or they wouldn't write to me. And I think also that... It's an instinct 
of the higher nature. You see, you're only human as you rise above the animal. Your animal self is one fundamental factor element in your life. Then when you come into the higher things that are not animal, the things of the spirit, then you get into this realm that we call art, and you begin to look for things that are creative rather than just uh, repetitive. And I think there's where you're in the realm of culture rather than education, because you can educate an animal. You've seen them do tricks, haven't you? Frank Lloyd Wright was outspoken, to say the least, about his disdain for the ever-increasing collectivist mentality that was rising in American culture during his lifetime. Standardization was not compatible with architecture or any other form of art as far as he was concerned. It was the individual, not the masses, which was the foundation for the American way of life. It's got to be an individual affair. It's got to be a slow affair. It's got to be a peculiar to you affair. Now, how are you going to do it with 20,000 students in a university? How are you going to do it with high schools crammed two stories, three stories high with a crowd of students? As a matter of fact, culture is not for the herd. Culture is not for the crowd. Culture is an individual thing. And that's what our forefathers struck when they decided and when they declared, I mean, that that, uh, the individual is sovereign. The sovereignty of the individual. Now, that means a certain premium on aloneness to start with. A certain uh, rejection of the common man as common. But insisting on his privilege to be uncommon. And so that exists in every human soul today. And this is the country that we live in that declares it the only one that has made it official, the only one that has made it constitutional to be yourself. (laughs) And we see abuses of it, of course, all down the line now. We uh, We see ourselves all drifting back again drifting toward the commonplace, drifting toward the common man. And you hear it asserted that uh, that was what our country meant, that the common man was free to be common. Well, he wasn't. He was free to become uncommon. And that's the freedom that we ought to tote and talk about. And we should resent with all our strength this drift toward equalitarianism, which is commonness raised to the nth power. Wright was raging against the machine age, the era roughly between 1880 and 1945 that ran parallel with his own time on Earth. Life was getting faster. The steam engine was replaced with internal combustion and electric motors. Mass production of high-volume goods on assembly lines, including the automobile, were making life easier for average people. Radio and phonograph technology was making the world smaller as communication was being broadcast and distributed to the masses. Fast, long-distance travel by car, train, and aircraft was now attainable for nearly everyone. But this all came at a cost, according to Frank Lloyd Wright. 
The machine age could be used to create a new kind of beauty and higher way of living, or it could be exploited to create a cookie-cutter culture that would become detrimental to the individual. It's taken me all these years to learn that standardization is no bar to beauty. And the standardization can be controlled and the machine used as a tool to develop a beauty greater and more beneficent, more pervading, more all-embracing than anything we ever knew before. So that's what this age means. That's what the machine age should mean. But it's being exploited and uh, turned inside out, turned over wrong side up by all these opportunists and this desire for material uh, benefits and success. Same old story, There's nothing new in it. It's just as it always has been. It's only when it is conquered and we're, we're aware of this greater and finer way of life that we're truly Americans in the sense that we have a new country and a new ideal and we have a new, therefore, we're bound to have a new architecture. A new architecture is what Frank Lloyd Wright brought to the world. His buildings stand as monuments to rugged individualism at a time when standardization and mass production were the name of the game. Nothing represented standardization in architecture to Wright more than what he saw in big cities across the country and the world. In his mind, the future was in country living. Well, the city, of course, is a, is a thing of the past. There was a time during the Middle Ages when it was the only source of culture. There was no way of acquiring this thing we call culture except by direct contact. It isn't so now. It hasn't been so for many years. It wasn't even so when this country was founded, but of course it was more so. But gradually, all the, the development of all these sciences, the gifts of science to us, have made this crowding unnecessary. And it always was, after the Middle Ages, it always was a detriment. Never was any real asset to humanity. And especially when the emphasis now comes on the individual and the growth of the individual unit and the whole process of civilization dependent upon the quality of that individual, especially. We've got to give over this uh, crowd. We've got to get out of the crowd. We've got to be all the crowd there is ourselves in proportion as we desire it. Getting out of the crowd, standing out as an individual, pushing back against standardization, much like our founding fathers, these are the qualities that Wright wanted for himself and for our country. When we return, the life and philosophies of Frank Lloyd Wright continue with architecture as the mother of all art, here on Our American Stories.
hear everything we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for the newsletter, follow us on Facebook, or browse through our archives to hear us whenever and wherever you want, absolutely free. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Our American Stories, and we conclude the story of Frank Lloyd Wright, and what a joy, what a pleasure it is to hear from the man himself, the greatest architect in American history, I think there's no doubt, and it's as if he's speaking to us, as if he's here right now, and by the way, he's talking about things we're still talking about right now, aren't we? And that's what made Frank Lloyd Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright. Well, we've heard him talk about art, architecture, culture, society, education, life itself, Here again is Jesse with the last part of this story. American filmmaker and historian Ken Burns saw Frank Lloyd Wright as the greatest American architect of all time. In his documentary in the life of Wright, Burns profiled his personality, egocentric and somewhat aggrandizing, and his talent, which was varied, original, and distinctive in this fascinating view of the architect who was an artist of the new. He is the prototypical American in every way. He's got a second act, which people have been saying we don't have. He he has a third act. He's also the greatest American architect, without a doubt. His overweening ego notwithstanding, that is true. The legacy of the buildings are great. This roller coaster of a personal life makes the biography so interesting. And in the end, he is asking us not just to live and like his houses the way an artist might want you to like his paintings. He's asking you to rethink what a house is and how we live. Architecture is the most important art because it's working on us all the time. And we don't choose to go to it. It's there with us all the time. It's not like the ballet or the theater or the cinema or television. It's working on us now. And he's the only person I know who every moment of his life insisted that we wake up and that he was going to provide the tangible evidence of how we might rearrange our lives to live better and more organically. But living more organically, at least in Wright's mind, was incompatible with living in the city. He knew that there would always be those who would prefer the hustle of the big cities, but he was also anticipating a revolt that would occur when people awoke to the realization that there's more to life than Fifth Avenue. Some of us will always want to huddle. Some of us will always want a pig pile. Some of us will let us... That'll, that'll segregate the uh, sheep from the goats, so to speak. You can stay and huddle and pig pile if you want to. But when you feel yourself to be an individual and you feel this declaration of our freedom, when you get that into your system, you'll want to go out somewhere where you can be as alone occasionally and be yourself as you want to be and have the benefit of nature You see, the city now is a divorce from nature. 
It didn't used to be such a divorce from nature as it is now. But now it is a great divorce from nature. And there's no substitute. You see, quality, there used to be a big sign on the roadside. I used to say it, it was advertising a patent medicine, I think. So quality knows no substitute, but nothing truer was ever said. Now quality cannot come from pig fouling and herding and traveling with the herd. There was a major rift between quality and quantity that Frank Lloyd Wright saw as directly influencing American exceptionalism. He also saw art and architecture as a way to retain the fundamentals of the human spirit that's necessary for a healthy culture. Quality is not compatible with quantity. Quantity can never be quality. No matter what the quantity is, there will always be in it the rising within of quality, see. And that is culture, and that is our country. That's what we've declared, that it should give this so-called common man a break equal to any other man's break, what was good in him. And the faith of democracy is that that every man is good if he has a chance to be. He will be. Now, architecture gratifies that sense of the future, the uplift, the becoming. And of course, all art should, more or less does. But architecture primarily is the basis of that. And from it, you get your painters, and you get your sculptors, and you get your crafts people, all desiring to make something suitable, fitting, uh, calculated to make human life happier. Gadgetry is intended to make it easier, and does. <laughs> but without these other things of the spirit, these mechanical things, which we have so many of now, and so much of, that has given us a facility we don't know what to do with. All we can do now is to rush from here to there with some idea that we want to go somewhere. We want to go now. But what we get out of going isn't what's so important as it ought to be. It's statements like these that led some to believe at the time that Frank Lloyd Wright was some sort of disestablishmentarianist who simply wanted nothing more than to destroy the new way of living that the machine age had brought to society. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. As Wright saw it, science wasn't the answer to the pitfalls of society, but it could be used as the means to improve our culture if used properly. I think science has far outrun our capacity to take its gifts and use them with uh, proper profit to ourselves. I think science has now reached a point where we're on the brink by way of it. And we can destroy ourselves by one false step. Because science gave us things that we weren't yet ready to use. We didn't know how to use them properly. We don't know how to use speed. We don't know how to use uh, so many of the things science has given us yet. And the fact that we're crowding in cities shows it. Proves that we haven't learned anything that we haven't really profited by what science has done. 
Science destroyed the city. Science has given us the basis for an organic architecture. It's science now that builds the building, and we call organic. But science as a tool, not as a master. Wright was both cynical and optimistic about the future as he saw it when this audio was recorded in 1956. That year, Elvis had entered the music charts for the first time with Heartbreak Hotel. Schools were desegregating. General Electric released the first alarm clock. President Eisenhower signed the Federal Aid Highway Act, creating the nation's freeway system. The first U-2 spy plane flew over the Soviet Union. The computer was invented by IBM. And the transatlantic telephone cable went online. Things are always either getting better or worse. They never stand still. Now, of course, I see great evidences in, in architecture. While much of it and most of it is imitative and not uh, really creative, still it's better than what we used to have. Still there is an improvement all down the line. There is a raising a standard, I think, in the country. And I believe that we're on the way to a culture of our own. I think we're going to have it. And I don't think I'd be alive here today. I wouldn't have the uh, work I have at my time of life unless that was there. I think that perhaps I today am one of the best proofs you could have of the fact that we're going to have it. Otherwise, they'd have chucked me out long ago. Frank Lloyd Wright died on April 4th, 1959, after suffering from abdominal pain and complications from intestinal surgery at 91 years of age. But he continued designing and building his works of art up until his final breath. With over 1,000 structural designs, 532 of which were completed, he left behind a legacy that has inspired and will continue to inspire artists, architects, freethinkers, and rugged individualists alike for generations to come. In a world where standardization reigns supreme, Frank Lloyd Wright bucked the trend, threw caution to the wind, and unbashedly defied the logic and opinions of everyone else around him. He was the American spirit personified, and remains a testament to the potential that lies in every person who dares to leave the herd mentality behind. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. It isn't up to us really to do anything except what we believe in ourselves. To be ourselves is the great privilege conferred upon us now of course, uh, without conscience, we can't belong to a society. If we were without conscience, and we had a, the idea of freedom that seems to activate most of these people, we'd land in jail very soon. So conscience and freedom are inalienable companions. One is because of the other, should be. And if it isn't, we're not going to be a success as a nation. And we're not going to have an architecture. We're not going to have anything. We'll crawl. We'll go back to the slam, I guess. And there you have it. Great job as always, Jesse. And if you like what you heard, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and hear more. And by the way, send us... If you can, your best stories, we'll put them up on air. 
They're not all Frank Lloyd Wright. Some of them are about you and the remarkable things and beautiful things you do in your life. OurAmericanNetwork.org Frank Lloyd Wright's story, a uniquely American story, here on Our American Stories.